You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Brand Engagement and Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. And today we're going to be discussing whether advertising in this age of programmatic placement, big data and hyper-personalization has lost sight of the big creative idea. To discuss this, I'm joined by Michael Mirafleur, a marketing consultant whose previous roles include Global Head of Futures and Innovation at Blue449, a publicist media agency, He currently sits on the board of directors of the International Radio and Television Society and is a contributor to Media Post and Luxury Daily, among others. So thank you for joining me, Michael. First of all, I think perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your past and current work in in media and advertising. Sure. So I've been in the industry for 15 years now. For the first 13 years of my career, I was at agencies. So I started first in a small, integrated, I would say creatively first minded agency here in Brooklyn after a very short stint in San Francisco doing uh, digital media planning. And after four and a half years at that integrated shop, I quote unquote graduated to a a big uh, media conglomerate buying job at Zenith Media, uh, which is under the Publicist Media banner. And I actually stayed there for eight and a half years. I I grew from being a digital AMD all the way uh, up to lead strategist on a couple of international accounts, a couple of luxury accounts, and eventually the title that you mentioned, Global Head of Futures and Innovation, Blue 449. So I've always been you know, one of the uh, outliers that has championed creativity and the big idea in the face of you know, a very dynamic digital marketplace. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I wanted to say that you're a prolific and inspiring tweeter on the, the business. Oh, thank you. Activity <laughs> and advertising. And in fact, it's one of your tweets that inspired the theme for this episode. And you commented on a recent Burger King campaign saying Burger King is one of the only big global brands that still believes in the power of the big idea consistently and relentlessly. And it shows. So I wanted to start by talking about this particular Burger King campaign that you're referencing, as well as overall Burger King strategy and what you think makes them so effective? Well, you know, what's funny is that I don't even recall exactly what campaign that tweet was referring to because there have been so many in recent memory that I think have made a dent and have started uh, a lot of conversation, Twitter and otherwise. So Moldy Whopper, Whopper Detour, Whopper Secret, burn that ad. I think Fernando Mercado, the, the CMO of Burger King, has done a really masterful job at centering campaigns around a big idea, a big creative idea, and, re- uh, and relying upon that creativity in addition to the requisite distribution by paid media to communicate brand. Sometimes you see brands make a statement and they don't put the proper distribution behind it. Uh, or other times you see a, a weak creative idea or you see something that is a very you know, commodity or, or, or offer discount based and you see that's what they really put their media dollars behind. So. With Burger King specifically, at least in recent years, it's not only that the campaigns are quite innovative, but it, it to me it points to a bit of a, I don't want to say old school thinking, but it, it's sort of the heart of, uh, of the industry. It's like you can still feel the soul of creativity of the industry still alive and well within the Burger King organization. And, you know, they win awards, but also 
I, I believe that their campaigns are, are quite effective. They, I think the other day they just won an IPA award and it gets people talking as well. So that's sort of the, the trifecta, you know, and, you know, Burger King is, is a huge, at this point, it's a, it's a multinational brand owned by RBI. So I give Fernando and, and his marketing team a lot of credit because I know that large global organizations are difficult to navigate, especially when it's a creatively led sort of marketing organization. Like to be quite frank, you know, over the past 15 years of my career, I've witnessed CMOs not having a seat at the table to, to, to push things through so that their board is okay, that their shareholders' investments are safe with what otherwise might be seen as a, a risk. You know, creativity is seen as a risk, I think, in this, in this, in this climate versus an investment, which is, and maybe this is before my time, but I, I think that was more of like the, the norm in the past. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I think of all the, the sort of markets that I look at in terms of creative advertising, fast food seems to be one of the, the, the boldest in terms of brands like KFC, Wendy's, and now BK are obviously doing some very interesting things on social media, whether that whether that is influencing their sort of broader, more mainstream advertising, I'm not sure. I think obviously the, the out of home stuff is still pretty basic um, <clears throat> and based around price point and so forth. But certainly on social media, you see Wendy's doing things in Animal Crossing. You see KFC creating avatars of Colonel Sanders and that kind of thing. So there does seem to be somewhat of a, of a risk taking vibe uh, with fast <clears throat> food, which I suppose brings me on to the biggest you know, fast food brand in the world, McDonald's, who have perhaps not been quite as risk-taking as their competitors, perhaps they don't need to be, but certainly recently have, have really stepped up with the, with the Travis Scott collaboration, which again is something I know that you had commented on, on on Twitter. It appears to be a, a big win for the brand. There's been a bit of a stock price boost, but I'm wondering whether you think it succeeded for the reasons everyone's said it did. Yeah, I, I, you know, hats off to Travis's team you know, in addition to McDonald's, I think through the pandemic, we've seen a lot of innovation in terms of partnerships coming from that camp. You know, you can point to the Fortnite concert as well. And some might argue that he's like, he's a rapper's rapper, but these are mainstream deals that require a lot of discussion, a lot of negotiation and approvals. And in the case of McDonald's, I would believe that there was a lot of, you know, econometrics in the back end to justify that partnership. And, you know, it's the first time since I think, is it 1984, maybe 1986, that they had allowed someone else's name to be put on a meal. Michael Jordan was the last celebrity that was allowed to do that. So I, I believe it's, it's half and half. I, I think you're referring to a series of tweets that kind of caught fire that I did in real time when I walked down the street in my new neighborhood here. I have a McDonald's just three or four blocks away. And uh, you know, it was late in the evening, and I saw a lot of you know variety of folks coming through the door ordering the Travis Scott meal by name. They asked for the Travis Scott meal. I would say that maybe half of them didn't probably didn't know who Travis Scott was, you know, and uh, for them, I think it was um, uh, a case of a cost price sensitivity. I mean, the Travis Scott meal is, is $6 and here in New York, that's 35% cheaper than the next cheapest or, or next most affordable combo, believe it or not. Uh, McDonald's combos run around 12 or $13 at a high point here. So, so I think it's a combination of factors and whether that was you know, a conscious decision by Travis and his team, I think is besides the point. I think that, you know, it's not an accident. I think McDonald's knows what they're doing. I, I think in contrast to Burger King, 
you know, for, for McDonald's, they're so much bigger. They have so many more locations. It's optimization of supply chain. It's localization of offers. It's dynamic pricing. It is trying to pivot people towards using the app to pre-order. It's maximizing drive-through throughput. It, it, it's just amazing how these two brands, to your point, this, this category, not just on social media, but also optimizing their operations, especially in the time of pandemic. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's up until Travis Scott, I don't think many people got too excited about major moves that McDonald's was making. But I think, you know, especially to uh, young marketers or, you know, marketers like myself who grew up with, with hip hop, <laughs> I listened to a lot of hip hop and rap amongst other genres. And to me, this was like, you know, wow, they're really doing this and they're going for it. And it does have an outsized effect with uh, a certain uh, young demographic. And, and to me, that signals that the organization is making an investment in their future. You know, it's, it's not necessarily by taking a political stance and it's not necessarily by changing their core messaging. I mean, their values are their values, but they know how to cater to this time and place in uh, popular culture. So uh, I give them a lot of credit as well. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, actually, this idea of, of like, because uh, I write obviously so much about brands at the moment taking stands, making um, sort of social justice gestures, the Ben and Jerry's of the world, the Patagonia's of the world and so forth, which I think mm -hmm. is a fantastic strategy and is, it does, I think, sort of chime with this theme we're talking about, about big ideas. You have to have a, a, a big message that you stand for. But clearly there are brands that somewhat shy away from that and McDonald's mm -hmm is perhaps one of them. So I think that's very interesting what you say there about how, you know, this is their investment for the future, investing in culture, I guess, more than some sort of uh, a message that, they, that they're trying to put out there. Now, this sort of feeds into uh, another point that I'd be interested in discussing about how you actually do cut through now in this day and age, because culture is accelerating uh, and moving at such a, a fast pace, especially if you're very online, like I am, and you know, you're seeing a lot mm -hmm. of memes pass by on a daily basis. And obviously recently, in the past couple of days, we've seen Ocean Spray, the, the drinks brand, receiving a huge amount of exposure due, due to a completely random viral TikTok clip, clip of someone skateboarding down the road to Fleetwood Mac drinking some ocean spray and it's one of those random things that just happened to go viral caught some kind of mood at the moment you know we're all sort of mm -hmm. a bit crazed in the lockdown and and this caught some kind of mood of, of freedom and liberation and for a couple of days i mean actually again you commented on twitter at the time you know ocean spray didn't do anything about it you know we had some follow-on mm -hmm. memes from fleetwood map themselves mick fleetwood did a did a, a homage to it and then finally, about, I guess, five days later, Ocean Spray's CEO did his own version of the TikTok. And, uh, you know, some people on Twitter were like, this is great. You know, he's really, you know, they're, they're, they're supporting this. Others not so happy that, you know, the brand have kind of ruined the meme. What was your take on it? You know, overall, I think that they did the right thing. You know, Ocean Spray is you know in comparison to some of the brands that we've been discussing they're they're a lot more traditional if you look at their their twitter handle they're not prolific they don't they're not one of those brands that presents themselves as uh, a personality and there was a lot of chatter by you know people that work in the marketing industry specifically social media marketing that were sort of piling on sort of screaming in ocean spray to do something very quickly within hours 
of, of that meme, which went viral very quickly over a weekend. But I was of the camp that, you know, this would be out of character for Ocean Spray. And you know that their brand managers are probably waking up to a thousand text messages or WhatsApps or emails. But I think they did the, the right thing in rewarding the content creator, gave them a, a new truck, hopefully also pay the taxes on it with a uh, cab full of, of Ocean Spray. What I thought was, was ultimately interesting was that in addition to taking their time and letting it play out, which is a reminder that sometimes you need to let things sort of let it play out in popular culture, you know, TikTok actually, you know, hit the gas and accelerated the, the, the cultural phenomenon and made it mainstream by making it into a TV commercial. So it wasn't Ocean Spray, it was, it was, it, it was TikTok that, you know, they took less than a week to turn this around into a nationally broadcasted TV spot that aired during the NBA finals. It was sort of amazing how quickly they were, they were able to do that. And ultimately, this benefited Ocean Spray. I mean, they're the recipient of a ton of earned media from social and now television. And you're having everyday consumers talk about, what is this? This is sort of interesting. This is feel good. Oh, look, there are 20 other people that have copied it. So even the, the, the least digital person you can think of has probably heard of it at this point. And I would argue that that probably wouldn't have happened if Ocean Spray started responding within an hour and sort of like, you know, made it an insidery marketing thing instead of allowing it to become the larger cultural phenomenon that it was. Because I can argue that, you know, the, the, that even the day after that meme took off, it was still a digital thing. It was still just an online thing. It had not captured the overall zeitgeist. But I think, you know, by giving it a few days to play out and let, you know, marketing nature take its course and by responding in ways that were authentic to the brand and not going overboard not, or not trying to act like, you know, Ocean Spray is the Gen Z brand. It's not. But by, by allowing it to grow into this, this, this cultural moment, it's, it's reaching everyone now, which, you know, uh, again, I don't know if this was necessarily a strategy for them, but it definitely worked in their favor, ultimately. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the point there you make about how it, for, for a while it was, it stayed digital. And, and you said, you say digital there as if there are, a, there is a kind of point where digital becomes a more mainstream observable thing in culture. And I wonder, you know, clearly at the moment, with everybody sheltering in place and so forth, digital has become mm -hmm. a bit more important. But do you, do you think the big ideas, because when people think about, think about the big ideas in advertising, they tend to think about TV spots generally, the big mm -hmm. commercials that everyone remembers. That seems to have, does, has that faded away a little bit? Are we, are, we more, are we seeing big ideas more on digital or is that just because I don't watch enough TV to see these big spots anymore? I feel like no matter what I say, I'm going to get in trouble. But I, I, I still believe, you know, I'm, I'm digital through and through. You know, I'm an elder millennial, but I consider myself to be a digital native. And that is also the primary way that I consume a vast majority of my media, video specifically. But I, I do still believe that, you know, most people, I think most consumers would agree to me with me as well that, you know, a brand creative idea has to earn its spot to resonate on the, the bigger screen in prime time, right? There's no room for mediocrity during the Super Bowl, you know, during the Super Bowl. And maybe that's taking an extreme example, but I think there are different modes of thinking about creativity. You now, obviously, you know, there's a need for the six second spot, 
there's a need for, uh, you know, good content marketing and storytelling on Instagram, but there still is also a need for a spot that resonates beyond singular platforms or singular formats. And, you know, throughout my career, you know, I've only been in this game for 15 years. I've been seeing less and less of it. So, you know, whenever I, I hear about, you know, you know, creative agency kind of swinging for the fences or, you know, even digital media planners and strategists still thinking about, you know, the big idea that can resonate across platforms and, and not just trying to think about the big TikTok idea, which is valid, but, you know, it's going to stay in TikTok or, or Instagram or, or any of these other platforms. I'm still a fan of when a brand can make a statement that kind of supersedes, you know, singular platforms. I hope that, I hope that makes sense. I kind of like talked in a circle there. No, definitely. I, I think, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of stuff that I heard Mark Ritson say a few months back where, you know, he's a very big fan of short term and long term working together and not being, you know, a separate Absolutely. strategy. And we seem, yeah. we seem to see a little bit less of that these days where the focus is on the short-term social media wins and less on the long-term two, three-year brand building that we see, you know, in the old days with, with brands like Nike. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that it requires a reconsideration of what the marketing funnel looks like. It, it, it probably doesn't look like a funnel anymore, or at least not to, you know, a growing subset of the population who has more spending power than ever before. I think a part of this, you know, thinking fast and thinking slow or planning fast or planning slow or thinking creatively like short-term and long-term is because I, I do believe a brand is able to increase awareness and drive sales off of Instagram ads. It's completely different than, you know, the AIDA model that everyone was taught uh, that was predominantly based on uh, TV GRPs, right? But we're still living in a world where media is consumed across all these screens. And yeah, you know, if you're a digital first person, you're going to overemphasize the digital end of things. But, you know, speaking on behalf of like the US, you know, there's 330 million people here. You know, when you look at the numbers, TV is still the fastest way to cue an audience the fastest, right? So you can't, you can't argue with numbers. You know, we were talking about Twitter earlier. You know, I think it's just over 20% of people in this country are on Twitter. 80%, almost 80% of this country is not on Twitter. You know, going back to the ocean spray thing, you know, maybe they realize it. Maybe this just happens to play out in their favor. But, you know, I'm glad that that meme didn't stay stuck in the TikTok and then Twitter echo chamber because they, they were losing out on a tremendous amount of reach. I just saw a photo yesterday of, or a couple of photos of, you know, ocean spray cranberry not being able to be found in a couple of like in a Whole Foods and a grocery store. And, and that is because it reached, you know, the mainstream. But you have to go to your earlier point. I, I don't know very many people who work at brands who, or who have started at brands, or excuse me, who have started brands that don't want to build 100-year-old durable brands, right? But I also don't know too many people who have started brands who can operate in the red, especially in this environment without having to prioritize sales or take VC cash. And, you know, w when you have venture-backed brands, they're going to want to see a return and you're going to have to keep that hockey stick growth going. Right now, social media is working. That looks significantly more like short-term thinking versus long-term, but there are brands that are doing a good job taking advantage of the fact that the funnel has either collapsed or it looks completely different now. And it does depend on your consumer cohort and how you balance that short-term acquisition with long-term value to kind of 
you know, build that brand again, both in the short term and the long term. I think it's, I think this is the most exciting time to be a brand marketer, especially if you are digital native. You know, there are a lot of CMOs that are not. And that's where I think, I think that's where the log jam happens with a lot of Fortune 500 brands where, you know, you see an elevation of the CIO and the CTO, you know, to sit alongside the CMO because the CMO might be a, a traditional person through and through. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want a CIO or CTO to be um, developing creative campaigns just because they know digital and they know cloud and they know the infrastructure better, right? I want a CMO that grew up in digital and understands not just how the railroads work in that respect, but also how to reach consumers in that, in that digital native language, but can also, you know, recognize that, you know, millions upon millions of people still watch TV and that's the primary way that they see ads. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 I like what you said there about digital native, you know, language and being able to speak that language, I think is a very important point. As I said earlier, you know, the culture moves fast and staying relevant is, is very hard. And I think, I wonder whether you think that's one of the reasons why some brands don't take risks because it's easier to say, push out a, a kind of universal message or a sort of rather more bland message that, that doesn't offend or, or doesn't go wrong than it is to try and plug yourself into the cultural conversation and do something a bit more risk-taking. Yeah, it, it really depends on, on the brand. It's a case-by-case -case basis. I think consumers are savvy enough and they have access to information and they're educated enough to kind of feel intuitively if a brand is doing, you know, the kind of deconstruction slash reconstruction that you're referring to, like authentically, right? Like there are certain brands who, you know, they, they, they pay, you know, top flight creative agencies and design agencies to, you know, redo their image and their logo. And, and increasingly, you know, it's like 50, 50 at this point, not that, not that brand should, you know, listen to, you know, the Twitter mob in reaction to a logo design, but it is interesting how, you know, for the past few years, this, you know, the increasing, you know, relevance of direct-to-consumer brands and the particular aesthetic and, and, and the, the power of these new brands to kind of dictate the general aesthetic that brands were looking like to even average consumers was super interesting. But now I'm not sure if it's a pandemic. I'm not sure if it's because it's, it, every brand is starting to look the same and, and, and you're hearing the term blanding a lot more. But I, I do think there's a little bit of a blowback against that, you know, that normalization of that very direct consumer aesthetic. And, you know, as a, as a large brand, you might look smart by sticking to your guns and staying traditional because everything's a pendulum. Everything goes back and forth, both from a, a design perspective and from a media perspective. So, you know, I don't, I wish I had the straight answer for that. If I did, I'd be, you know, <laughs> I'd be a very high priced consultant, but, you know, again, once again, it, it's interesting to see all this play out because there is no clear right way of doing things. And it, and it depends on you know, what the brand's values are and how authentically they execute their vision. Fantastic. Thank you. I, so I'm f asking my guests now three questions at the end of, uh, of every episode. So the first one, the first question is, if you had a million dollars, where would you invest it right now? I, I'm going to hate myself for uh, this answer, but I have to be pragmatic. And, and Be Bezos certainly doesn't need more, more, more money or more wealth, but I, I would have to say Amazon. 
I'm a long investor though. You know, I'm not a day trader. So, so that million dollars, I would hold that for a decade. And, and, you know, I, Amazon's just too much of a juggernaut at this point. Not that I agree with everything that they do, but you know, again, being pragmatic. Fair enough. So what's a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet? Okay. This one, I'll give you a, a sort of left field answer for this. I think that delivery packaging for food there's been zero innovation there and, and i'll tell you a really quick anecdote you know i i treated myself last week to like an expensive steak from a steakhouse here in brooklyn and it was delivered in the same packaging that you would put your leftovers in there's like there's literally zero uh packaging innovation and and i know that the you know individual restaurants and restaurant groups and you know, people that uh, do product innovation are, are all of a sudden focusing on that because that's that's going to be part of our future for the foreseeable future, you know, a decade from now, whether we like it or not. And uh, I don't know, it's just one of those things that you don't think about too much, but it, it does affect the the level of enjoyment uh, that you experience with with every delivery. And we all do delivery now, so um, I'm kind of excited in a weird way. I'm very excited about uh, food packaging. <laughs> Brilliant. And finally, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? So I'll give you a few answers here. So I, I, I like to look at brands that um, are sort of like cults or inclusive cults because there's some magic there. So here in the U.S. anyway, you know, there's Peloton, Airbnb, I know they're global, Lululemon. There's a, there's a brand called House, which is a, a young direct-to-consumer aperitif a beverage brand that's doing really good work. But I also look at like big brands and seeing how they're able to stay on top. So Apple has the big announcement today, you know, the moves that Amazon is making. I mean, yes, they're 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 huge brands, but you know, they're under the same pressure to deliver every quarter and to be able to articulate how they're going to be relevant for consumers in the future. Especially in the case of Apple, you know, very few people have a reason to upgrade their phone if they have a phone that's less than 3 years old. So you know, the constant need for innovation that's not just iterative with every new handset that it, that at least feels revolutionary enough for me to fork over another 800 to $1,000, you know, that keeps me as excited as the small direct-to-consumer brand. Well, fantastic. Thank you. A really, really fascinating conversation. And I think lots and lots of food for thought there for brands, agencies, and creatives alike. So I'd like to thank my guest, Michael Miraflor, and thank you for listening. Please join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 